You're listening to Passions and Prologues, a literary podcast where each week I'll interview an author about a thing they love and how it inspires their work. I'm your host, Adam Sokol, and if this is your first time in, thanks so much for joining. If you've been listening since the beginning, glad to have you back. Today's episode is with Alexis Henderson, who is the author of the absolutely stunning The Year of the Witching, and Alexis has a brand new book coming out called House of Hunger. As it is officially fall, I am really excited to do several pretty spooky authors in the next month or so. Uh, Not every single episode over the next month is going to be horror writers exclusively, but a couple of them will be, and I'm really excited for the different types of stories that they have to tell. Alexis and I met when The Year of the Witching first came out, and we hit it off. We bonded over a a series of things, one of which being something that we talk about today, which is the early 2000s Tumblr scene, as well as her love of the movie Twilight and the old MTV shows uh, Skins, specifically the UK version. We'll get to all that in in just a moment, but uh, I want to say if you are a fan of horror at all, spooky stories for spooky season, you absolutely have to check out The Year of the Witching. We talk about House of Hunger uh, towards the end of the episode, and you absolutely have to go get that book too. I actually saw a copy of it out in the wild last week before it was released. It was being processed by a bookstore that I was at, and I got very, very excited. I took a picture of it. Great stuff. It just kind of made my day getting to see it out in the wild because The Year of the Witching is so phenomenal, and I just know House of Hunger is going to be just as good, if not better. Uh, So definitely check both of those out. Go get them right, right now. And I also want to, in keeping with the theme, uh, give you another kind of spooky story that I really loved from a few years back as my book recommendation, which is The Companion by Katie Allender. Uh, This is the story of an orphan named Margot, and Margot gets adopted into this family, but she realizes that she gets adopted to be sort of the best friend uh, and watcher over of uh, a child who is living in this house that seems to be kind of comatose. Uh, They have a a silent, mysterious daughter named Agatha. And at first, helping with Agatha isn't all that bad, but creepy, creepy things keep happening. And uh, Margot is not really sure what's going on. It's an isolated story. It's a a gothic story. It's very, very creepy. Uh, If you're a fan of those types of stories, you're absolutely going to love it. As a reminder, if you are ever looking for book recommendations, just give me a quick five-star review and a rating and screenshot that. Send it to me via email at passionsandprologues at gmail.com. I'd be happy to give you some customized book recommendations. And thank you to everyone who has shared the podcast, who has told someone about it. I extremely appreciate it. It helps people find me just a little bit more easily, just kind of doing this on my own here. So any support you can give, I really, really appreciate it, whether that's sharing the podcast on social media or again, just telling a friend. Regardless, thank you and thank you for tuning in. Okay, that is all of the housekeeping. I am not going to wait around any longer. I'm going to get to my conversation with Alexis Henderson on Passions and Prologues. I'll just start by asking, like, what is the thing that you are super passionate about that we're going to talk about today? So I want to talk about like a specific aesthetic and I don't know if it really has a name, but like everyone knows what it is, which is like an earlier 2000s, probably hitting its peak. I don't know, like anywhere from 2008 to maybe, correct me if I'm wrong here, because it's kind of, I'm going to vibe 2014. Sure. I'm going to place it there. Um, But it's like the 
kind of I've heard it called Tumblr grunge and it, Twilight was like a big, a big scene at this time, but also the UK, not the US version, the UK specifically, yeah. um, skins and this whole kind of like aesthetic and movement and vibe that to me is kind of like modern Gothic, but also kind of calls back to the eighties with like, I'm thinking of like the literary brat pack with like Brett Easton Ellison back at that time. It's like, it, it draws so many things from different subcultures and time periods and I personally am obsessed with it. I feel like I never left that <laughs> space. Like, I never want to leave. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so let's get into it. Talk to me about, and we'll start with, like you said, like Skins UK and, and Twilight. Like talk to me about your first experience with the, the TV show and the movie. And like, we'll get into like the music side of it and the Tumblr stuff. But, like talk to me, like walk me through, like what was it about the show and then the, the movie for Twilight? Like either one you want to talk about, you know, what was, like, where were you when you first saw it? Like what was it about it that kind of struck a chord for you? So I, I grew up pretty conservative, right? And I I remember just kind of always having this like fascination with all of the things I shouldn't be interested in. Mm-hmm. And so like I remember hearing talk in the homeschool community because I was homeschooled about this really graphic, really rude, really raunchy like teen show, Skins. And there's this organization, I don't know if it's still around, it's called League of a Thousand Moms. And they would like protest things that were like inappropriate uh-huh. for children. It was very much like a protect the children sort of thing. And Skins became like the t- like kind of like the object of their ire um, mm-hmm. at this point. And they like launched this whole, I remember it being like a campaign. Like everyone's like, don't let your teens watch skins. It's horrible. It's graphic. It's terrible. And of course I was like, I have to watch it. Right. Like I can't not watch it. And so I remember, I don't even remember how I was able to watch it because I feel like at the time, I I don't know if I watched it on Netflix or if I had to like watch it online through like shadier means because I was in the US. I really don't remember, but I just remember being absolutely blown away when I saw it, both because I feel like at the time there weren't many shows that ha- that included that level of like diversity. I credit Skins with being one of the first times I saw like queer characters on TV mm-hmm. or even like a full cast of characters that by no means was a perfect show. Like there were characters, main characters that weren't white. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was kind of like revolutionary for me and also just the explorations of like oh. mental health and the the darkness of the show and the way it didn't kind of shy away from the things that like like the teen shows that I would see on like Disney or ABC Family like it didn't shy away from those darker topics so I was fascinated and around the same time I remember seeing the Twilight trailer for the first time for the very first movie and I I must have played that trailer 12 times like, back <laughs> it the moment when Edward like puts his hand against the car and stops it in the giant dent my jaw like thought I was like what is this I felt like it was made for me I don't know I, I was obsessed and have been ever since yeah no I think what you're talking about with the like skins especially it's not only like you said like the the representation and there there being this diverse cast of characters which like for people who are listening to this would that might be like of a younger generation I'm not saying either of us are old but like <laughs> younger than us like teenagers now that's not something that you were used to seeing and then there was also I feel like and correct me if I'm wrong but at least for me being like a, a younger boy during that time like there was this like, I'm not supposed to be watching this feel to it. And it had that like, it felt like I was doing almost something, like you said, like, like something like wrong. And and I think that there's like, even if you go back even further, like for me in middle school, I would read Goosebumps. Mm. And in my mind, I like, I was reading those while I was in math class. And like, I was like, oh, I'm not supposed to be reading these creepy, but they're not creepy at all. But in my mind, they were when I was like in sixth grade. And I'm like, no, or like scary stories to tell in the dark. And like in retrospect, 
I'm sure my parents knew I was reading them and they were just like, yeah, he's reading it. And like, he thinks he's getting away with something, but he's still reading. But yeah, I feel like there's also that kind of, ooh, I'm not supposed to be watching this show. Or it's like, it was always on at like 10.30 or 11 o'clock at night. So I could like watch it in the den of my house and be like, no one knows what I'm doing. Like, was there any like aspect of that for you too, for those things? Absolutely. No, I wiped my history after watching Skins because like, I should say like, I was kind of like, I think I still had like one foot in the fundamentalist Christian cult at this time. I was homeschooled, really conservative. So it was like a huge no. Like I made sure that when I was watching Skins that like I was, my back was always to a wall so that like no one could walk past me and like mm-hmm. see like Effie holding her like cigarette or joint or whatever. Like I was so paranoid that someone, like my parents would know that I was watching this and it did have that kind of like fly on the wall. Am I supposed to be seeing this? I feel like I'm watching something I shouldn't. But it was like deeply cathartic too in that way to see someone, to see some of my own like struggles sort of like reflected back. I was not an edgy kid. I kind of wish I was like the skins teens, but like Mm -hmm. I did have anxiety and depression and those sorts of things. And I had never seen portrayals of characters dealing with those things in like kind of like a visceral and real way. And it's weird to me because skins kind of oftentimes gets credited as like glorifying mental illness. And I'm like, I kind of feel like maybe like when people, I hear people say that critique, I'm like, I'm not sure we watch the same show because for me, I think there was like a lot of unflattering and kind of difficult parts of mental illness that were explored mm-hmm. in skins and that was really amazing for me to see and it kind of comforted me because I was like I'm not the only one who's like dealing with this yeah I, I feel and that'll get to something else we're gonna talk about in a second but I feel like what you're talking about I related to in I think I'm a little bit older than you but like in the early 2000s I was in high school and that was when my chemical romance and AFI and like this pop punk which is what it's called now like this genre of music came out where like I remember like I said I was I wasn't like an edgy kid but I was a very emotional kid I feel like I was I was the youngest of four and I feel like I was very emotionally mature in the sense that like as a teenage boy I wasn't afraid to cry and be very in my feelings but not really knowing what to do with it. And so there was this feeling of I'm the only one going to these things. And then all of a sudden, like I hear the first few like piano keys of Welcome to the Black Parade by My Chemical Romance. And I'm like, oh, wait, no, I'm not alone. There's a whole like operatic (laughs) album. Um, Or again, like AFI, like hearing these bands where it's like they were putting all these emotions into these songs. That was one aspect of, and then like something else you were talking about, like the rise of Tumblr. Like I feel like for me, at least those first few social media, it gave you like a feeling like, oh wait, there's a community of other people that are feeling this. Right. No, it was, I would never argue that Tumblr was like a healthy space. Like it came with its fair share of negatives, Mm -hmm. but it was revolutionary for me just feeling like a sense of community and that there was like people around the world that connected to the same things that I did. Like, I remember I had a random pen pal I met through a blog that lived in, I think she was French Canadian, and she related to the same things I did. And like other followers that I had felt the same. And so it was just, I don't know, it was really, it was like an interesting space in time to feel like you're kind of on an island and then realize that like, no, there's so many other people that share that experience. Okay, so like with Tumblr specifically, like, and we'll get back to like Twilight and other, because I want to talk about like other movies that are kind of similar in that vein, but like, how did you find yourself using Tumblr? Because like I find myself today from a social media standpoint, like I'm on TikTok in the sense that like I'm watching some TikToks when my niece sends them to me, but I'm not like creating anything. Like what were you using Tumblr for? Was it just to like find aesthetical things or were you using, I guess just like walk me through what it meant to you. So I got an Instagram pretty early and Instagram just was not my vibe. Like I remember 
I'm pretty sure I remember seeing like Caroline Calloway's post and she's, a, she's a fascinating character herself. Like uh, this kind of like Instagram guru, who's I think credited as being like the face of early Instagram, but it was not my vibe. It was just very, I feel like Instagram was almost too happy for my angsty teen self. And so I was kind of looking for something, a space online where I felt like I kind of fit Pinterest. I use it a lot today, but still didn't quite scratch that itch. And then I found Tumblr, which was like the angsty version of Instagram mixed with Pinterest and blogging. And there was like book and nerd stuff. It was like my haven. And I remember just like scrolling through and seeing all of these pictures. And I, I kind of developed this like, I want to say like pack rat habit where I would just like collect pictures based on all of these different vibes. And I used them to kind of create my own blogs or like fan material, fan blogs. I even would create boards and blogs specifically for like characters and books I was writing. And so that was kind of like the beginning of my like Tumblr rabbit trail. <laughs> I don't know. So many of those like early aesthetic influences did like come up in my work later. Right? Like I feel like Effie was like a really common character on my blog and pretty much everyone's blog. I mean, yeah. I think we all kind of wanted to perform this aesthetic that we had kind of picked up from places like Skins and Twilight. And it's funny because like at the time was like living in like Georgia and South Carolina, like really sunny and beautiful, but all of my blogs were like fog washed and dark and grungy. I have never touched, to this day, I don't think I've ever touched a cigarette in my life, but like on my angsty teen blog, like you would have never known. And it was such an interesting, it was such an interesting creative space because we were all kind of, I feel like recreating ourselves or these like idealized versions of ourselves mm -hmm. in spaces. In some ways it does feel kind of similar to writing. And I think that that's kind of interesting. This like experimental thing that happened on Tumblr where we create these personas. But at the same time, it's almost like, and I may be projecting how I view Tumblr, but like, it's almost like it's a more realistic persona on Tumblr. Like, cause like you said, I feel like Instagram, and, and I'm not the first or the millionth person to say this, but it's like Instagram is everyone's moments of their life that they want you to think is their entire life. Like it's mm -hmm. it's the picture of a on a beach that they took a hundred pictures of to get to make it look like they're having the best beach day in the world, or you know, it's people taking a picture where they're on a plane above the clouds, and it's like on the way to you know France, and it's like. Yeah, but the other 350 days, you're, it's not that. Whereas like Tumblr, I don't know, it, I think it was a certain like, because it was a combination of you could blog or you could like put GIFs up there and you could kind of be a version of yourself where you could show like, this is kind of like, you can almost like show your soul. Like this is who I am on the inside type of a thing. And, and I think you're right. Like, I don't think, talking about Twilight a little bit. Like people like to kind of like make fun of those movies and like even like Robert Pattinson, like classic is like, I don't really, I wasn't a big fan of the movies, but like the aesthetic of that movie, like the, the gray, like the washed out, you said the fog, that's a thing that is super prevalent still now. Like that's had a huge effect on all sorts of art. Yeah. No, I I am still in the clutches of that aesthetic. I'm like, am I ever going to grow up? <laughs> I don't, I hope, I just, it, it's like, I think in a few years, like, I mean, in more than a few years, like 30 years from now, there's going to be a new word for that specific kind of aesthetic. And I think it's going to have something to do with Gothic because I think it's, I think it does kind of call back or it's like a modern version of like the Gothic aesthetic that we know in the Victorian era. Like it's mm -hmm. our... It's our own take on it. And I think it's, I think it's had such a huge impact on our culture. And like when I see today, like shows like Euphoria, which I love also, um, I can, I can see the echoes of that. And it's so yeah. cool a new generation, like kind of remaking and reinterpreting that same aesthetic. It's, it's awesome. 
And for you specifically, like I have, for people that are listening in, they will see that this is one of the first episodes of this podcast. And so I told Alexis that she's actually the first person I'm doing an interview with, and it'll be one of the first episodes. But like the other people that I have scheduled to do this, their things that they want to talk about, I kind of have to squint pretty hard to be like, oh, how's that connected to your writing? Folds into the year of the witching. And like, I could definitely like see it instantly where I was like, oh yeah, that makes all the sense in the world. But I do want to ask you, how would you say, if the word isn't just directly, like, how would you say those, the moods of that time, like that, you know, skins and twilight and like using Tumblr, like, how would you say those fold into and inspire your work? I think one of the biggest takeaways that I got from like skins and twilight and that whole vibe was that like, it's okay not to be happy or to like perform happiness. Like it's okay to accept your darker emotions and make something of those, you know? And people complain so much about Bella. I don't know what this says about me, but I kind of related to her character a lot. (laughs) And like, I just felt like she has her flaws, but like the fact that she just, you know, wasn't happy all the time and didn't seem that interested in performing happiness was huge for me as like a a people pleaser, a shy person just to be able to kind of exist in that space. And to be kind of like, she does have a, a little bit like that, you know, Mary Jane's, you know, where like everyone's kind of obsessed with her and fascinated by her and interested in her. But before encountering kind of Twilight, I just didn't think that somebody with that kind of um, proclivity or personality could really be the object of desire or admiration mm-hmm. of the main character of her own story. So that I think had a huge impact on me. And when I approach my own characters, some of them are a little darker, like Emmanuel in The Year of the Witching. She's kind of stoic in comparison to some other characters I've even worked on in the past. And I think it was cool just to be able to write like about gloomy girls. I love Abby. I love Bella. I like characters that kind of dwell with those emotions. I didn't mean to specifically continuously come back to uh, my chemical romance. So don't get me wrong, I love, but they definitely weren't like my favorite band of that time. But you know, they have this, like this song, like, I'm not okay. Like, I feel like today people, especially on, on social media, like we all constantly remind ourselves, like, it's okay not to be okay. And I don't think that was as prevalent back then. So to find these, like you said, these shows and these areas where you would see other people who are like, I'm sad. That's not like, there's not an overwhelming problem with that. I, it, it's okay to be sad. Like, I do think that's super important, especially for like younger readers and younger consumers of content. Like, that's really important for people to see that you can be moody or not in the best of moods and it doesn't mean you have resting bitch face and like whatever. It's just like, that's, it's, it's okay. I think that is super important, right? No, that was huge for me. I, I remember at the time, do you remember like, there were all those posters, like the keep calm, carry on posters or like the smile t-shirts. And it was just like this pervasive message that you should just, whether you felt good or not, you should appear that you did and just stiff, stiff upper lip. And I felt like those shows um, and, and Twilight, the movie were kind of like, in opposition to that. And I, I loved it and felt really comforted by it mm-hmm. as a, and still as an adult, because I think having a more kind of like public facing role than I, I anticipated that I would, there is this kind of pressure to like only be active on your on days when you're feeling great. And then when you're feeling kind of sad, you cover that up or you stay offline or you, you tuck that away. And yeah, I think it's kind of like a lesson for me. Like you can kind of express the fullness of yourself and not mm-hmm. just the happy version yeah and I like I've only just now started getting good at that too like putting posts whether it's on like Twitter or Instagram like admitting I'm not doing okay on a certain day or like I have lots of clothes that like like there's this um company it's like boys get sad too and like they promote 
mental health in young boys. And like, I have a hat for a while, like I would wear it. And then I would be like, wouldn't like ever post any pictures of like the hat or anything. I was like, you know, it's like, like you said, it's the more people talk about the fact that maybe they're struggling. That's a good thing. And like, that's, those people deserve to be the main characters and stories too. Like they're not less than for struggling like that. I am curious, were there like, we talked about Twilight, like were there other movies that you think like you found influence in or like shows that you think kind of built off of like Skins or Twilight? Were there things like that that also stuck or resonated with you? I One that is coming to mind, but it's actually like just before is the 90s, early 90s horror movie kind of campy Ginger Snaps. I don't know if that one, it's a werewolf like teen girl paranormal it follows two i think two sisters yeah so that one was great for me i saw it around the same time i could talk about euphoria all day i mm-hmm. think euphoria is just the direct inheritor to uh skins uk and i yeah. think the things that i felt were really lacking in skins uk by way of like accurate representation or more accurate i think euphoria has all those things and kind of explores on a deeper level mm-hmm. some of the things that i wished skins would have and i love that show yeah i i wonder if that has something to do with like the play like with euphoria being on hbo i wonder if that has like weirdly something to do with it where like they can be a little bit more i don't know like exploratory or if it just be just because it is you know almost 20 years after it at this point but yeah i mean that's that's something where i have a a 15 year old niece who's constantly asking my sister she's like i want to watch euphoria my sister's like i don't think you should like everyone else in my family is like you might want a letter because this is the like she's in high school this is kind of the life she's sort of experiencing even though it's an extreme version of it but like i don't know i i think personally shows like that can be as important from like societal educational standpoint for like teenagers as some of their classes are yeah, I don't know. There's there's a show. I don't know if you watched it. It's on Netflix called Big Mouth. It's like a cartoon about like <laughs> yeah. which is like a way different mood and like, but it, it's all about puberty and like. I've heard so many interviews with the creators of that where they said like, yeah, it's raunchy and it's kind of gross, but like we've had so many parents tell us that they're like prepubescent teens or like children are watching our show and learning about like sex education more so than they are in their own. I'm rambling now, but it's just I feel like these types of shows are really important for. Like teenagers, if that makes sense. I 100% agree. And it's like, it, I, I, I'm now I'm getting older. I'm like wondering, like, what kind of parent would I be? Would I be the parent that's like, I'm a cool parent. I'm going to let you watch Skins. Or am I going to be worrying that like, if my kid watches it, they're going to like, you know, get into some of the, 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 the darker sides, like in the bad behavior, or try to emulate that. Um, mm-hmm. But I feel like that's a constant debate. Like, is it good for teens to see the darker realities portrayed on television? Or is it like encouraging them to, behave in a certain way yeah I don't know it's like a really interesting discussion that I think about a lot like because it's not like I'm I would never argue that the shows don't have their flaws Mm -hmm. I think that there is something to be said for like exploring the darker parts in a in a space that's safe and I feel like a tv show is kind of like a relatively safe space absolutely yeah I I fully agree because like even I went to a really small school I graduated with 47 kids in high school, like tiny, tiny school. I was the last graduating class in my high school. And even in our tiny school, like there were kids who were like doing cocaine and like hard drugs. And like, I was never interested in any of that, but like, it wasn't because I was educated about it. It was just because it was like, that feels like that's an insane thing for me. I'm 17 years old. If I was watching shows where they were kind of showing like the negative sides of those, I know I would have been even less likely. I'm like, whoa, have you guys seen like what this does to people? But 
Yeah, I, I do think it's important. Like, there's so much sheltering, and this is a whole other conversation about like banning books and keeping like sheltering kids from media and culture when they're out in the world, like they're going to experience it. So you, it's important to arm them with the information as opposed to just it's assume they're never going to come up about these things. Right. And to get like hit with an avalanche of all this stuff as soon as they turn 18 or I mean, and I always wonder like what's, what's the alternative then? It's like, you just plug their ears until they're 18 and then they figure out everything at once. I feel like that's kind of more traumatic than them sort of slowly learning about the darker realities. Of oh yeah. If someone like goes off to college or university and they're 18 and they've never been exposed to anything and then all of a sudden they get like you just get thrown into this community where people have come from all walks of life all around the country. You're going to experience stuff that maybe you didn't in whatever town you're from. And it's like, maybe it's cool to arm them with a little bit of information about this stuff. And I do think like you're talking about skins and like to get back to what we're talking about, like Tumblr and social media. And like, I do think those are things that can help people kind of understand the world a little bit outside of, for me, like a tiny community that I came from. So 100%. I think also there's like a conversation that could be had too about like the fact that oftentimes sheltering is a real privilege. Mm -hmm. And like kids who are sheltered are oftentimes have like parents and schools and institutions that do shelter them. But not every teen has that option. And mm -hmm. I feel like with skins and also euphoria, they kind of... Sh demonstrate the, like realities that you know that me being like a homeschooled like small town southern kid in like a relatively like nice neighborhood like I just didn't know that people did life that way and I don't think that that's necessarily like, a good thing like I think mm -hmm. it's important to know that everyone kind of comes from different backgrounds and that some people might have had a harder lot in life yeah and so like anyone who has read the year of the witching like I think just what you're talking about right there about like the sheltering and not wanting to expose people to like the outside world, like that stuff. I feel like if anyone has read the year of the witching, that is imminently like the, the connection there is it's a straight line. It's not like weaving your way around it. Like it's very much involved in there, but I'm curious if you could kind of tell our listeners about your new book, house of hunger, which isn't out just yet. This is coming out in like June. So the book's not coming out until the fall, correct? So do you want to kind of give our listeners a little bit of a, of a preview for it so they can go pre-order it since that's like the most important thing you can do for authors? Thank you. Yeah. So House of Hunger is a, a gothic horror novel uh, that follows um, a young maid, Marion, um, and she lives in like an industrial um, Victorian London inspired town called Crane. You know, she longs for a better life in the North. Um, and in the North, nobles live, they drink blood, consume it just for their pleasure and for their health. And they employ blood maids who essentially give their blood um, so they can drink it. And uh, Marion applies to one of these positions and she enters this like debauched and wealthy world of Northern nobles and becomes kind of enamored with her new mistress, uh, Countess Lisbeth, who's inspired by the Countess Bathory. And as you can probably imagine, <laughs> some pretty dark things ensue. So um, yeah, that's my newest book. And it kind of does, it, it's like a different take on the whole entering from one world into another like the year of the witching emmanuel is kind of sheltered and she doesn't understand like the, the workings of her world and the witches that kind of haunt this like sheltered religious society she lives in in house of hunger similarly marion is kind of entering a world she knows into a darker world that kind of challenges her morals and broadens her mind we'll be back with more passions and prologues after this break Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, 
that's a hard no about saying no and setting boundaries so you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor, so while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. And now, back to Bastions and Prologues. What is your why for wanting to write this particular book? Because for people who might not be in the book industry, I I just finished writing my first manuscript of a novel myself. And like, even though I wrote it pretty quickly, it takes a long time to do that. Like it took me six months to finish my first manuscript. And it was a story that I had to spend all this time in. And I knew why I wanted to write it. Like, because you knew you were going to be spending so much time on this book and it's your follow-up to the Year of the Witch. And like, what is your why for wanting to write House of Hunger? Uh, I always knew that I wanted to write a story that explored a romance. I'm using that term really loosely and lightly. Something like a really dark romance or kind of like the villainous side of love and desire and obsession. And I think that House of Hunger was really an expression of that. Going in, I didn't really understand that that was what I was writing. But now, like looking back and having you know, through several rounds of like revisions and rewrites, I can really see that like I wanted to explore that kind of like darker side of love because I think that we have this idea that like love and desire and infatuation are kind of like inherently pure. So, and House of Hunger, I wanted to explore kind of an alternative of that, and, and specifically, I wanted to explore that within the context of queer relationship because. I just, it's not that there are no books that do that. Like Things Have Gotten Worse Since We Last Spoke was one that I loved. Um, and then there's um, In a Dream House, which is actually nonfiction and it's beautiful. But mm-hmm. I have kind of wanted to t- have my own take on like a darker queer romance villain relationship. And that's mm-hmm. what I could do in House of Hunger. So Yeah, no, that sounds amazing. And I'm so excited to dive into it. But like, was there was there something just because the whole kind of concept of this podcast is all about like inspirations and and things you're passionate about. Like, was there anything in particular that I don't want to say inspired you to write this, but like, was there something that jumped out of you one day, whether it was a year ago, two years ago, while you started working on this to say like, oh, that's the story I want to tell. Like, was there a TV show or a song or something that you were like, that kind of sparked that idea for you? I feel like I've talked about Twilight so much already. Oh, you're good. So, okay. Interestingly, I watched Twilight years ago, got obsessed with Twilight. Twilight directly led me to Countess Bathory. And Countess Bathory, obviously, is inspiration behind this. So I think that she was kind of the seed of it. But I remember when I was writing, kind of feeling myself be drawn into the thrall of this, like, figure. My book, she's just, she's a reimagining of the Countess Bathory, not her in actuality. But I was just kind of, like, disturbed that like, even though I knew where the story was going and I knew the ending, that, like... And I was still being pulled and drawn by her and kind of hoping or wishing that I could rewrite this to be like a, a pure romance instead of what I knew it was. And I think that I was kind of like inspired by those, 
one of those darker romances. And I guess my own pull toward things that I know aren't best for me. And I do think that like in Twilight, there's a, that's like a happier version of that, right? Like Bella falls for Edward and he's dark and she shouldn't, it works out. And this story is kind of like the reverse of that. Um, I won't say that that makes it more like realistic, but I, it was something that I was yearning to to sink my teeth into. Yeah, no, that's a good, good, good phrasing. Yeah, no, I, I totally know what, what you mean. And the, if anyone is unfamiliar with the Countess Bathory story, I'm not going to give it away. You can, you know, go look it up for yourself. But like, there is a lot there that from a storytelling standpoint that I can, yeah, I, it's, like I said, not hard to like squint and see why you wanted to spend so much time with that particular type of idea. Like I fully fully understand why you would want to tell that type of story i every time i look up the year of the witching like on goodreads it always says number one is are you planning on going back to that series because obviously like the last time we talked it was before the book came out and then it became just this like you know massive massive thing like are you planning on writing more books in that world are you allowed to tell me that or no i honestly i can tell you i think i just i'm not even sure i think Sometimes I feel like I will, and I have like two front runner kind of like strong ideas, but I think that they need more time to develop. But it's weird. It's like the world kind of lives on at the back of my head. And in some ways, I just feel like the characters are figuring out what they're doing. And then one day they'll present that to me, hopefully. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I would not at all be surprised if I returned to the world eventually. It's just that I don't think that I realized how difficult it is to write sequels in comparison just to like standalone novels. Mm-hmm. And I was completely taken aback um, by that. And also just the year of watching being my first book, it's it's weird how different the creative experience becomes when other people have already read your book or other people are maybe hopefully anticipating the next book. And it's a huge honor that like people want to read it. But I also feel at all times this crushing pressure not to like disappoint anyone, you know? Yeah. Like, I'm just like, I want to give something that's my best, best work. Cause I feel like I just don't want to waste anyone's time. Um, especially since it's taken me so long. Uh-huh. I'm not here to add to your pressure, but I mean, I will freely admit, like when I remember when I first got pitched to interview you for your first book, I, I don't even think the cover was out for yet, but they sent me like a PDF version of your book. And I remember reading like the first few paragraphs and I was like, holy shit, I need to know more of this. And I remember like tearing through the book and just loving it and like being so obsessed with it and telling everyone, and, like reading it so many times. And like literally every time I would get done with it, an author interview I'll tell that person I'm like hey if you like horror at all like there's this book you need to read like the second I saw you had a new book I think like you tweeted it or something and it was like it was the cover and it was the title of the new book and I was like oh my god oh my god oh my god it's a new Alexis Anderson book like I don't know I just think people are going to be so excited just to have a new book from your mind and like again I'm not I'm trying to like quell your anxiety I feel like I'm only adding to it so I apologize that means the world to me. I feel like you, I, I feel like you just supported the year of the witching so much. I really feel like talking to you like in that last interview we did, like when we talked about the witch and Judas, like it was just, it really made me feel better and more confident. I don't know. I think you just have such like a good energy and I feel like you just done so much for the year of the witching for me. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Oh, I mean, I'm glad I just, I genuinely like, I remember reading the first paragraph. I remember like the literal first paragraph of the first page. And you know how like sometimes there's just like, like we've always lived in the castle. I feel like Shirley Jackson, I feel like everyone talks about like that first paragraph is like the most, imp- like the best first paragraph of a book ever. And I just think there's sometimes these stories. And I, for whatever reason, I remember reading the first paragraph of The Year of the Witching and like 
I put it down and like I like texted an author friend. I was like, I have read 60 words of this book. And I like, I don't know. It was just, and then from there it only got better. But yeah, I, I mean I'm glad if in some small way it helped, but uh this is these aren't even questions anymore. I'm just praising. I just loved it. I was, I, I read it like every six months. I'm just obsessed with it. It's so Thank much. I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. But like I feel like the, like these past few like years have been so hard creatively just to like muster up some creative energy to just mm-hmm. make something and like like support from you and like others who believed in the year of the witching and connected with it really has kept me on my feet like I mm-hmm. truly like that has what like has kept me going like I still feel like in some ways I really just like readers and other people are kind of keeping the world of the year of the witching like alive for me yeah. and that is just like such a great gift something I never expected um to come out of the publishing experience I didn't realize that how much of that my creative process would relate to like other people continuing my creative process by reading my book like it's that's mind-blowing to me I'm just I'm grateful and to an extremely small small extent I I feel like I kind of know what you mean because like I said I just finished a manuscript and it's with a um, a copy editor who I work with who is copying it for me before I query and like right now in this exact moment I'm like this is my story in my world that I built and then you know, fingers crossed in a few months from now, an agent will say like, yep, I want to, let's share this with the world. And then like, all of a sudden it does, a story takes off and it no longer is like mine in theory, hopefully it's the world's. And so I've heard so many authors say like they can detach themselves from their books once it goes out to the world. And that kind of makes me sad. Like, I love what you're saying because it's, like you said, it's keeping the world of this book alive by you getting to have these conversations with with fans and readers and like community, like it really makes me happy to hear you say like that you enjoy those experiences. Cause I always feel really bad when I hear an author be like, yeah, I just, I kind of try to separate myself once it's out there. It just feels, makes me sad. It makes me sad too. And I, 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 at least for me, I don't think it's possible. I also feel like, I don't know, sharing is just another step in the creative process, which is not to say that I feel like at any step, the creative process can be complete. Like if you just write something, you don't want to share it with yourself or your friends, or your critique partners, like that's a complete process. But I feel like when I share it with readers, it's just like another step in the journey. And I'm just, I, I am happy and relieved that like, that I've, I've still been able to hold on to some piece of my, my work, but also enjoy what it becomes like the minds of readers and other people like readers are so smart. They catch things that I didn't catch or interpret things differently. Like, I didn't mean that, but that's a cooler version. So, like, <laughs> like, that. like, it's just, I don't know. It's so great. It's, it's that part is really awesome. Oh, that's amazing. Um, okay. I have one more question for you that I'm going to ask everybody. Give me one recommendation. It could be a book. It could be a recipe, a song, a movie. What's something that you like recommend to all your friends and family or like anyone who asks, like, what's a thing that you just love that you want to share, like shine a light on for the world? It's um, The Blood Trials by Nia E. Davenport. It just came out. It's like, it's, it's sci-fi fantasy. It's like the perfect marrying of the two. The pacing is like, it's fast, it's quick, it's high stakes. Um, so that one I highly recommend. The Hacienda by Isabel Knez, which I think is, it's going to come out like, I think next week. It's, mm-hmm. um, it's a got another Gothic horror novel, really, really dark. Again, highly recommend that one as well. Um, and Wild and Wicked Things by Francis Dorset. I think it released two weeks ago from mm-hmm. Orbit. 
there's just so many good books being published. Like, yeah. um, oh, I read Babel by R.F. Kwong. That was amazing. Mm-hmm. Babel blew me away. I cried so hard. Like, I, had, I was, like, getting tissues at multiple points. Mm-hmm. So I, would, I would definitely recommend pre-ordering. I can't get that book out of my head. It kind of destroyed me. <laughs> you just crushed that out of the park off the top of your head. That was pretty amazing. Um, all right. So Alexis, I, I've been singing the praises. Uh, the Year of the Witching is one of my favorite books ever, ever, ever. I am so, so freaking excited for House of Hunger. And I need to tell you, like for everyone listening in, the concept of this podcast is a little weird. And to pitch it to my author friends, I have like Alexis can attest. I sent her like a 400 word DM trying to explain it. And you instantly said yes. And I just appreciate that so freaking much. So thank you for coming on and doing this with me today. Thank you for having me. This has been so fun and great. It's always a pleasure to talk to you like anytime. Passions and Prologues is proud to be an evergreen podcast and was created by Adam Sokol. It was produced by Adam Sokol and Sean Rule Hoffman. And if you are interested in this podcast and any other evergreen podcast, you can go to evergreenpodcast.com to discover all the different stories we have to tell. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.